Good evening, afternoon, or morning, depending on when you're listening to this. I am Steve Horney, and you are welcomed to Five Questions with Reka Ayalar. We are going to learn everything about how to master kettlebells safely and also just learn about life. So I'm pleased to have Reka here. As you kind of notice, I'm going through the people that have helped me get letters after my name. Those HKC letters that you see are thanks to Reka and her wonderful coaching. So I was her student in my test out through Dragon Door, which was phenomenal. And it was nice because it wasn't just a certification. It was me going to show what I had learned, but then also to learn a lot more. So it was really nice. And I feel really lucky to have her on today because she knows a lot and she's really patient and really kind. And, and to me, it's your communication style that I find so helpful as someone who, when I'm putting myself into an uncomfortable situation where I know I'm being tested out, it was really helpful to have someone who is so kind yet also so knowledgeable that helped me get to where I needed to go. So Rachel, would you do a favor and just tell us, for everyone who's here, tell us your story. Sure, uh, so yes, so I'm Reka Ilor, and um, my story, gosh, uh, that, that could go on forever, but I'll, I'll keep it somewhat short. I um, am in the DC area, for those of you who are not familiar with where I am, I live in Arlington, but kind of like, that's pretty close to the DC area, so in and out of DC. Um, my background is, you know, I grew up in Alexandria, which is a suburb of DC, um, so I've been here my whole life. I went to um, University of Undergrad or University of Maryland for undergrad um, and ran track there. So I was an 800, 1500 meter runner. Um, so kind of what would kind of now be considered almost a sprint to middle distance, but back then it was more distance running. Um, and then uh, kind of ended my career there like pretty injured um, and went on to run a little bit more after that, um, just doing like road races and um, some 1600 meter races on the track and stuff like that after that. Um, and then kind of got out of it when I was just over the injuries. And so kind of went into there, from there into training on my own, didn't really know how to train on my own because up until then we were in this, in a program where people were telling me what to do. And so I was just taking bits and pieces of that and um, trying to train myself somehow, but then trying to figure out what I'm training for and why I'm training and um, and then kind of worked my way into uh, kettlebells, which I think we'll kind of touch into on the in the first question. Um, but that, you know, that kind of brought me through a lot of doors to where I am today. Cool. That sounds great. And I'm, I'm glad you got injured then. Um, yeah. I know that that's kind of a common story. Um, I became a physical therapist because I was an athlete and I got injured. It sounds like you found your path through that. And I, I do think that the people that we work with benefit from that negative experience that we had of getting injured because we come become so good at figuring out that problem and then expand our circle yeah. from there. So I'm, I'm kind of happy that you got injured. Tell us what was the injury that you had? Oh, I had a number of injuries in college. I had a lot of knee issues, which is funny because like in hindsight, when I think of my injuries, I'm like, oh, they were so easily fixable. And I could have fixed my injuries so quickly on my own now, just knowing what I know now. So in some ways, I'm like, you know, I wish my coaches back then really understood like how the foot is supposed to be strong for a runner, how you fix upper extremity injuries through fixing the foot. Um, just 
little tweaks to the you know the training programs that we were doing because I don't think they were bad training programs. I don't I don't think that they were running us into the ground by any means. I just think that there was a lack of strength that was um, a foundation of what our training was built on. And so just fixing that foundation of strength would have then probably prevented us, a lot of us from getting injured. Yeah, I feel the same way. I look back and think that if I just had a little bit more, and we call it pillar preparation, like taking your shoulders to your hips, everything in between, making sure that there's appropriate mobility and appropriate stability. I I mean, I think I did pretty well with what I was given athletically, but I always look back and like, man, like I could have had less injuries and I could have been a better wrestler. I could have been a rugby player, like a better rugby player, could have been a better football player, like all those things. I'm sure you have similar um, thoughts process for that. So then let's get into the first question. Maybe this will help some other people who are younger and who are listening to this, but why train with kettlebells and what's the best way to get started? So, um, yeah, so going back to kind of how I got into kettlebells, I was training out of college. I started just going back into barbell training and doing really like a lot of mindless exercises at the gym. Um, And I say mindless, not so much because of the exercise itself, but because I didn't really understand why I was doing it um, or what benefit it was going to provide. There wasn't really a path into why I was doing certain things at the gym. I just was checking boxes. I was like, I need to, you know, I was grew up in the nineties, two thousands, where it was like, you have to do cardio every second of the day. Like to, it was like ingrained in you, like you have to do cardio in order to be fit. And so I would go to the gym and get on the treadmill. Cause that's what I knew. I knew running and, or I would get on the elliptical or something like that and just mindlessly work out for an hour. And so when I was there, I, so I was at this, um, Washington Sports Club, I think it was what it was called at the time. I don't, I think, I don't even think they exist anymore. But um, so there were two trainers there who, in hindsight, I didn't realize this because I didn't know what this was at the time. But they were both RKC trained, and this was back in, I want to say, two thousand eight or so. So it's been a little while. Um, and so um, they were like a part of the original Pavel crew of um, RKC certifications. And so um, I saw them using kettlebells in the gym one day and i was like that looks really cool and so i went and asked them like would you guys consider doing a group class and they're like well we're actually putting together a group class now um, but you have to train with us individually a certain number of sessions before we are allowed to get into that group so they're building this group of people that they've uh trained individually and then could eventually get into this group class And so at the time I was like, you know, 28 or so. And I was like, that's a lot of money to spend on a trainer when in my mind, I'm like, I know what I'm doing. You know, I, I've been in a fitness world for a while. Like I can put things together. So I, but I had no idea what this tool was. Like, I was like, I don't even know where to start with this thing. So I was like, fine, I'll just suck it up and pay, pay for it. And it was by far the best investment I've ever made in myself. And Again, at the time, I had no idea that this door would open me up to so much more in life. I literally just thought it was going to be another form of exercise that I was doing. And what I ended up learning was that the the way that the kettlebell was built, I was my injuries were just going away from training with them. Um, and I had been injured for so long. And, you know, I felt better. I felt I was getting leaner. Um, And I was never obviously like very big because I was a middle distance runner, but 
I never felt like I was really a lean athlete because that's just not, we lifted with heavy barbells in college. You know, we were doing back squats with 250 pounds or whatever on them. So, you know, it, it made me feel leaner and more explosive. And so from there, um, and I know Steve, you also know Darius very well, but so I went to train under Darius Gilbert, who is a master RKC with Dragon Door now. Um, and he too just totally changed my way of thinking about kettlebells. And, you know, it, it turned into, you know, how to translate kettlebell work into sport performance type training. And I'll get into that a little bit later, but, you know, I guess I say that to say the original question was, um, you know, how do you start with kettlebells and what are the benefits of kettlebells? Well, so starting with the benefits of kettlebells. So there was a, a ton of personally injury prevention for me. And then what I learned with working with Darius is that this implement is an amazing tool at training athletes how to produce and absorb force. Um, and there's so many things you can do with that. The way that the kettlebell fits into your hand, for instance, like we used to train at DSP a ton of overhead athletes. So your baseball players, volleyball players, basketball players. Um, and a lot of them coming in, so the age range was anywhere between eight and the oldest client I had was 63 at the time. Um, but, you know, taking the, the subset of what we called the athletic performance group, which was the younger kids, um, a lot of them had shoulder and elbow injuries. And the way that the bell just kind of sits in your, on your wrist and in your hand and your grip strength and how that's directly related to your elbow and shoulder um, uh, health, um, so it just, it opened my eyes to this world of, you know, athletic performance training with bells versus with barbells um, and how efficient they are at training athletes. And just, you know, for instance, um, how in a, in a kettlebell swing, how that horizontal force displacement is exactly what you look for in an athlete when they're moving horizontally. So your track athletes, your long jumpers, triple jumpers, anyone really that's that needs to get at a high rate of speed, baseball players, when you're trying to run a base, how quickly you get from point A to point B is directly related to like how quickly you can swing a bell and that force velocity curve. So it taught me a lot about athletic performance training. But then, so this is where I was saying in the beginning that like all of these doors kind of opened up sequentially for me through this just one chance encounter of, you know, seeing these people using kettlebells. Cause you know, I met Darius after that, trained with him for a while and then tra started training at DSP and then got introduced to Dr. Levinson, Craig Levinson, who is, who owns LA Sport and Spine out in LA. Um, and he has the first principle of, principles of movement and um, trains a lot of the uh, rehab to performance. So from your acute setting into back into the real world of training um, and learned a ton from him and started getting a lot of referrals from um, physical therapists and chiropractors who were past the acute stage of training their clients and needed to actually like load their clients. And like, you know, they're, they're past this like, this rehab state, they need to actually lift weights um, and get stronger and faster. Um, and so, you know, I think that's it. The, the world of kettlebells is very different from barbells in that sense, where it can be used for, you know, kids from eight to 
80 year olds, you know, it's like such a great tool for performance training and for rehab training. Um, and then, you know, it's interesting the, the question about how to get started with it, um, because now that, you know, with COVID and everyone being kind of quarantined um, and the kettlebell um, supply being like wiped out for some reason, which is really odd to me. I don't know how, I don't know how that happened, but um, so I've had so many people reach out to me with the question of, oh, I have a 24 kilogram bell. What can I do with it? Um, and so, yeah. And so like, part of me is like, it's irresponsible of me to just give you an exercise to do. Cause I've never trained you. I have no idea how you move. I have no idea. Like, you know, if I screened you, like, how would you scream? Do you have injuries? Do you not have injuries? So that's a really tough question for me to answer. Um, but I think what, um, you know, going back to me when I was 28 and sorry, I know the sun is in my eye. Maybe I'll reposition this. Um, kind of investing that money in myself. And at the time I didn't see the investment and I get that. So like when I reach out, when someone reach out, reaches out to me and I say to them, you really need to find an instructor to teach you how to use this implement correctly. Just like you wouldn't go and, you know, try to barbell lift while I would hope not by yourself. Like you wouldn't do Olympic lifts by yourself. I would hope that you wouldn't get on a platform and start doing Olympic jerks by yourself. So you'd probably hire a coach to do that. For some reason, there's this mentality around kettlebell training that I can just YouTube a video and all of a sudden I can figure out how to do it. And there's so many subtle nuances to technique of kettlebell work um, that has to be pretty perfect to not get injured. Um, and so it's kind of frustrating when people tell me I got injured using a kettlebell because it's, it's not the tool that injured you. It was either the instructor or you thinking that you were able to do it on your own and you got injured from the technique not being correct. So, you know, one of my biggest pieces of advice to anyone who wants to invest in their health, which I would hope everyone would, would be to work with a certified kettlebell instructor. Because like what I tell my clients all the time is, I wanna teach you how to use this implement. I also wanna teach you how your body works so that you don't need me the rest of your life. I don't want you to need me for longer than a couple of years. You should learn the technique, understand, like if you come to me and say my low back hurts, you should be able to figure out why your low back hurts and fix it. If your right knee is hurting you, figure it out. There's something going on. Either your hip is not working correctly or your ankle's not working correctly. Which one is it? You should be able to assess that in yourself and fix it. I don't want your money anymore. I want you to figure it out yourself so that you can sustain this the rest of your life. So hopefully that answered the question somewhat. Maybe people will ask questions at the end though. Sure. And anyone who's here, we're going to do all the questions at the end. So ask anything that you have at the moment, just throw it into the chat room and then we'll get to them at the end so we can gauge how much time. Uh, I couldn't agree more with what you said. And it's nice to hear one, your impression when you first perhaps started thinking about kettlebells, um, I was first exposed to them exclusively through injury. None of the benefits as a physical therapist, the first time that I heard the word kettlebell was from a person saying that their rotator cuff was bothering them from a kettlebell. The second person that I heard the words kettlebell come out of their mouth was when they were saying that their shoulder was bothering after they had done snatches. So you get a little bit biased to certain things as a physical therapist. I would say the things that most cause bias for 
at least for when I've been practicing and now it's 14 years. So I've kind of taken you through 2005 till now is you heard a lot of bias around kettlebells in a negative way. You heard a lot of bias around CrossFit in a negative way and a lot of bias around yoga in a negative way. And I'm going to take CrossFit and just put it over here for right now, but say that yoga when practiced the way that it was originally meant to be practiced thousands of years ago, trying to get tension in the body from the pinky toe all the way through the bundas, all the way coming up is a beautiful movement practice. And as far as I'm concerned, the original movement practice, but it's gotten translated like a game of telephone, translated, translated, translated. And what you're getting on Instagram or YouTube that Sunday morning when you log in may not be exactly what was in mind in the beginning that gave so much benefit and therefore gave it so much longevity. The thing with kettlebells, I think a lot of people don't dose them very well. I think that they are a beautiful tool to build durability. And like you said before, the ability to create, but also to accept force is really important. Rate of force production is something that PTs learn next to nothing about when it comes to physical therapy school. And I think that's why you're seeing so many physical therapists and chiropractors in your classes, because y'all are the ones that are guiding us towards what's best for everyone. You see people meeting in the middle, no matter where they come from, whether it's doctors, chiros, acupuncturists, physical therapists, strength coach, dancers, gyrotonics, Pilates, you see ebbs and flows towards things that really work. And you all are the best, I think, at creating physical, physical durability by a good ability to produce force and to accept force or to produce power and to accept that power that's been created. So on to our next question. I think that was great. What are the benefits then of strength training for women in particular? So um, I wanna react to your other statement. Hopefully sure. I won't take things too far off track. But you said a couple things that kind of triggered something in me. So one of them is around the, um, you know, with social media, with kettlebells kind of becoming like this in thing, just like yoga, um, which is all of a sudden this in thing, even though it's been around for hundreds of years and it's been translated and translated and translated, the same kind of applies to kettlebells. So you'll see a lot of people on social media, whether they're kettlebell experts or not, who have taken it to an, a very advanced level. Um, which is great for them. They know what they're doing. They understand their bodies, hopefully, and they are able to perform that movement. What ends up happening, though, is that somehow that becomes the, the standard of, oh, you know, I'm just getting into kettlebells. Like, true story, I had someone reach out to me. I forget where this was. It may have been on social media. Um, and I think I may have been doing a snatch or something. And they were like, oh, I'm going to try that. And I was like, wait, like, no. And that's not what I, why I meant to post it on there. Um, but I had posted like, you know, several months ago, a, a little thing on social media where I said, you know, we've somehow gone away from squats and hinging as being cool. You know, it's like everything else is cool when our athletes, our clients are not there yet. They need to go back to a level of just being doing squats and hinges 
until they get to the level of cool and can do beyond that. Um, so anyway, so, you know, I digress a little bit, but um, to go back to your question about strength training for women. So this one is really, you know, hits home to me because obviously I'm a woman and obviously I've been strength training for a while. Um, but so, you know, I think, I think it's very well known that one of the first things that everyone says, a woman says, when you tell them to lift weights is, is this going to make me bulky? And it's a, one of the most obnoxious questions ever, but I get it. I do get it because you look at a lot of heavy power lifters out there and what you see is mass, but that is because in order for them, to, and, and I think this is a lot of people forget that power lifting in itself is a sport. So that sport requires them to carry a certain load in order to be able to perform the activities of that sport. Just like, you know, typically swimmers are very lean because they've got to be able to get through water at a certain speed. Same thing. I mean, for some reason, the world has turned powerlifting into a general fitness population uh, sport when it's not. And so I think, you know, we have a tendency to look at powerlifters and Olympic lifters and say, well, their bodies are built a certain way. So am I as a woman going to look like that automatically if I start lifting heavy? Um, and that's not necessarily true because you're not training the same way as they are. I will say, though, that I have found that, and this is just from, you know, my view of social media and people that I know that lift with barbells. I do think that barbell training gives you a slightly different body than kettlebell training. Um, I think because in this, you know, I haven't studied this, so I don't know if this is actually true, but I think because of the way the bell moves and the things you're able to do with the bell, it is a more athletic movement than barbells. And so therefore it translates into leaner muscle mass being built versus the strong, like, Kind of crossfit bodies you see and nothing against crossfit bodies i mean you know those women look good but the crossfit bodies are boxier because it fits the barbell style of lifting um, whereas when you see a lot of kettlebell trainers who are very advanced in their kettlebell skills most of the women are pretty lean and athletic looking um, and that has always been my draw like when i started using kettlebells was i felt like i was getting much leaner than when I was doing barbell lifting. Um, so, you know, I think that's one of the, uh, the biggest things for me. The other thing is that, so when I was training at um, DSP, and even now when I'm training younger female athletes, so I'm talking, you know, eight, nine, 10, up to like high school, even college level, there's an intimidation level of walking into a weight room with a bunch of meathead guys. And especially when you're in high school, it's like boys that are just like, oh, I'm going to max out on X today. Um, and most women and girls don't want to be around that. It's intimidating. You can even walk into your, you know, Equinox or wherever. And the majority of the time you're going to see women in the cardio section and men in the barbell section. That's just how it is. Um, so, what I've seen, though, is when you get these girls who typically at that young age um, are a bit shy and, you know, introverted, especially when it comes when they're around boys and you give them kettlebells to train with, something changes for them. 
it's empowering in some way to them to be able to lift heavy weights. Um, and so, you know, when we used to train uh, kids, younger kids, uh, you'd have the girls eventually get to a point where they're lifting the same amount as the boys are lifting. Um, and then it's not even like a competition anymore. It's kind of just like, oh, we're all peers and we're all here together. And the girls start gaining this really good level of self-confidence. Um, and I see that, you know, I, I have a, a soccer player that I train and, um, you know, she's like, she was pretty withdrawn and like, like very, very weak. <laughs> Um, I mean, she could barely squat, you know, like a 10 pound kettlebell when we started off. And as she started getting better and as she started swinging like a 24 kilogram bell, you could tell something in her was just like, oh, my God, this is amazing that I can do this. Um, and, they, and that confidence then translates into school and into the work environment and everywhere else. So, you know, I think it's important to. I think that's why it's important to kind of get women into that type of training um, and kind of get them off of the, you know, cardio equipment that's away from the guys. The other thing, obviously, you know, we all know about when you start getting into your elderly population um, and I, I train some people that are in their 60s, late 50s um, and fall becomes one of the number one injuries and in, in reasons for death in younger in the young or sorry, in the elderly population. So, you know, um, teaching um, or getting your older client population to be able to withstand stuff like that. And my older population, female and males, we do a lot of single leg training because um, it's very important for them. They've got you when you walk, when you run, when you do anything, you're on one leg at a time. You've got to be able to withstand enough weight on one leg to be able to transition to the next. Um, and so working on that with them and then in older women, you have osteoporosis and osteopenia. And, you know, I had a woman that I still uh, she comes to my Zoom uh, sessions. I won't name her for that reason, but like she's um, she must now be about 66, maybe. Um, and she first started coming to DSP and I was training her there and she had um, osteopenia. She had arthritis um, and she had a bunch of other issues. And not even joking, like six months in, she went back to her doctor and her doctor was like, your bone density is increased. You're like, not, you don't have osteopenia anymore. And her confidence level, like she is religious about using kettlebells now. And that's great. I mean, she joins my classes. I know she joins Darius's class a couple days a week. So, um, yeah. Yeah, that, that training for, and, and again, we were talking before, and again, to try and connect the dots for some people, when we talk about strength, we're talking about force irregardless of time, meaning I can produce X amount of force, and it doesn't matter whether it takes me time to get there, I'm not producing it quickly necessarily at all. When we talk about power, we're talking about being able to produce force quickly, meaning the denominator for power is time. So for a lot of the people who are older, they tend to lose power. And granted, you need to have strength in order to have power, but that loss of power, perhaps because we're not training it as well, perhaps because that's part of the normal aging process, regardless of what the question for answer of that is, we need to train our people that are over 50, 60, 70 for more power. 
And to, to, to piggyback of what, off of what you said is you have to have that underlying strength first. So we take it all the way back. We have our eight foundations of movement. Anyone who's thinking about making a shift right now towards doing kettlebells, start, I would say, start with your eight foundations of health that we have. So that's your exercise, your ergonomics, sleep, stress, diet, digestion, breathing, and connection. Like start with that. Those are the most important things that can be going on. Like get your systems working well together, but then get into your eight foundations of movement. And those are to catch some of those big things like you hit on it before, which was so nice. It's like, maybe you have a glute that's not working all that well. Maybe one of your obliques isn't working all that well. Maybe your ankle doesn't move all that well. Do some sort of movement screen, whether it's ours or whether it's someone else, but assess before you address. Don't just guess. Like, what's the point of that? There's so many good people out there who have put out there like, hey, check out these things. And, and I think that's really important. So go from your like, get your systems going right, then assess some stuff, but then get into your foundations of exercise. And that's not being doing snatches and cleans right away. It's squat, hinge, lunge, push, pull, locomotion, rotation, and pillar prep. Like those are the things that you should be building the robustness and then demonstrate that with power, perhaps with the kettlebells and some more holistic movements. And especially for women, it's so nice to hear you say, because I have a mother that I care dearly about. She's probably listening to this right now. And a lot of the things we're trying to do is to make sure that we're building physical robustness with her, that we're building mental and physical durability. And I don't know a better way to do that other than all the things that we're talking about. So thank you so much for helping out even more to help more people like my mom. And I have a goddaughter who's 13 years old and she is a heck of an athlete. And all I want to do, all I look, she's in Texas, but like I look forward to that day when her and I are in the gym together and I can just get her to, have that kind of aha moment of like, I don't need to be afraid of this. This can be a fun thing that I can master. And I almost have the same emotional reaction to it that I had when I first started doing martial arts. There is a certain je ne sais quoi badassness that comes with a kettlebell that happens with martial arts that I think everyone, male and female or anywhere in between should feel. So it's nice. It's, it's nice to hear those conversations are being had. So. What other forms of training should I do to complement my strength training program? Uh, so I'm going to ask that, but I'm going to comment on something that you just yeah. said. So funny story, um, you know, <clears throat> when I was at DSP, but there was a lot of kids that came in and out of there. And uh, initially they would come in because they're playing some sport, you know, and they were like, heard about DSP, we, we trained them. And a lot of them would actually quit their sport <laughs> and still come to DSP. And it became like, their sport was kettlebell and it was amazing because these kids they came in because their friends were in there and it built this community for them and they were they wanted to come there because they really enjoyed kettlebell training but they were kind of like eh about lacrosse you know so <laughs> it's funny so um anyway so what other forms of training should uh, uh should you do a compliment uh, well it's funny that you mentioned yoga i'm a big uh yogi um, but I'm not a big seller of it. And there's a reason why. And, you know, I feel like, um, like you said, like yoga has become so bastardized through the years, you know, and, um, it's unfortunate that it has, but it is what it is. You know, like if you go to, you know, the natural form of yoga that it was centuries ago, it's not even close to what it is right now. Um, 
But, you know, I discovered it probably around the same time that I started doing kettlebells, so like 2008, 2009. Um, and initially um, was kind of like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not, it's a good sweat. Um, and, but what it did for me was that it taught me breath that really um, complemented kettlebell breath. So it's that deep diaphragmatic breathing that they teach in yoga as well. Um, and there's a sense of calm and meditation that comes with it. And so that breathing, um, and you know, I look at look back at it now and I'm like, I, I really do think it transitioned a lot of things in my life. Um, but it taught me to kind of be still in the moment and also to um, not be so reactive in the moment, you know? Um, because that's a lot of the poses in yoga are you're in a position. How long can you hold this and just breathe, which is a lot of life. It's like kind of a metaphor for life, you know, like you're in this position. It's uncomfortable. How long can you be here and breathe? Um, my reluctance with recommending it to other people, though, is that I don't think that and obviously this is not every instructor. There are some instructors that are amazing out there. Um, there isn't um yoga can be very like stressful on the body because there is this um desire to be hyper mobile in positions um which isn't everyone's body nor i don't think we would want it to be everyone's body there's got to be a um like a balance between mobility and stability in your body and so when there's this hypermobilization, typically those people are the ones that get injured. And so for instance, um, you know, if you're familiar with yoga, there's like a twisted chair pose or something like that, where, you know, I, I might look around and see 50% of the class twisting through their lumbar spine to get into this position. Um, when they don't understand that what they're doing is not correct. Um, and so, but what, what needs to come from that is an understanding of why twisting through your lumbar spine is where the twist should not be coming from and why it should be coming from your thoracic spine um, and how to be able to mobilize your thoracic spine in such a way as to get into that position. So anyways, digress a little bit, but you know, so I'm a huge fan of yoga for a lot of reasons. For the breathing aspect, I do a lot of myself power type yoga mostly because I like the inversion part of it. Um, I think it's really good for my shoulders. I do a lot of like handstands and crows and that, those types of poses where I'm kind of in a planked position on my forearms a lot, um, which I think has been really good for my own shoulder health. Um, so I would recommend it for that reason. But one of the biggest things I would say as an alternate form of training is play a sport. Um, there's so many like good rec leagues or whatever um, and it doesn't even have to be super competitive, but like, I think all of us, the majority of us in, you know, middle school, high school, whenever, not necessarily college played some sport that you could probably get back into. Um, you know, it's a stress reliever and it actually uses your kettlebell skills towards something. I remember, you know, a few years ago, I was like, I want to play something that I can do with my kettlebells. And I was like, I'm going to play golf. So I was training a golfer at the time. This girl, she was amazing. She was an 11-year-old golfer. I think she may have been 12 at the time. Regardless, hit 300 off her tee shot. 
um, she was incredible. And this was, you know, after training at DSP for a while, got her to that point. And I, then it became like this internal competition. I was like, I wonder if I can beat her off my tee shot. And so like, you know, I was playing golf for a little bit, eventually got bored with it and it wasn't for me. Um, but you know, I started boxing now. And so it's like, it's stuff that, you know, translates and, and pretty much every sport you can use as a translation from kettlebells and use it for that purpose. Um, the other one that I really like is getting outside and like sprinting, um, not necessarily going for like five mile runs, but you know, there's a tennis court down the street from my house. And sometimes I'll take my dog there and just sprint with him down the tennis court. And I might do like five or six and that's the whole workout. Um, and it's mostly to wear him out, but it's, it's good for me too. Um, but you know, sprinting to me is like one of those things that it's kind of like what you said with power generation. Sprinting is very relative. It's, you know, like one person's sprint might be someone else's jog and that's fine, but you'll eventually get to the point where that gets faster and faster and faster. But for me, the sprinting aspect of it, I don't know if it releases endorphins or what it does, but it's just like this amazing feeling when you're done, you feel lean, you feel strong, you feel athletic. So I always tell my clients too, like a couple of my clients will meet outside a couple of days a week and we'll just do sprints on the, on the tennis court or the track or whatever. Um, and I, I really do think it brings like the inner kid out in you too, to be able to do that. Um, and lastly, like, you know, to go along with kettlebell training, this isn't really like a, um, a sport, but to do some like hurdle type work or like jumping and, you know, jump rope is part of like everyday life for me. I, I think every day when I warm up to do kettlebells, I start with jump rope because um, it's so good for your foot. But on your quote off days from, um, from strength training, jumping rope for like five minutes a day is actually a lot. To be able to jump rope for five minutes straight is actually pretty hard. So you know, stuff like that, or just recover. Um, you know, I know I'll kind of get into this on the in, in the last question, but you know, it's okay to recover. Our bodies need it. Um, there's so many people that are going, going, going all day with their jobs, with kids, especially now with COVID when people are super stressed out and at home with five-year-olds like screaming all day. Like sometimes you just need a, a day to just go take a walk or something and not be hard on yourself about it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. I, I think the from my the way that I kind of think about it, and I say this a lot is like everyone should go hard, but you have to earn the right to go hard. And I think that going hard, neurologically, the way that I think about it is that post-activation potential or PAP, simply put, if you do something that's really hard, it makes everything else just seem a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. um, I've had those personal experiences where, let's say I'm doing a circuit where I'm doing some pull-ups and I'm doing some deadlifts. And it, you would think that my pull-ups would go down in numbers, but because my deadlift is something that's a little bit harder and, and I really have to focus in it and I really have to get that total body tension from my big toe all the way up to the top of my head, like everything's going, my pull-ups will actually sometimes go up with my heavier deadlifts, which would make no sense if we purely are just looking at the body as muscles, creatine phosphate, and ATP, but do make sense if we look at the body as the neuromyofascial system, 
all as one together. And so I think that it is really nice on people. You were talking about endorphins, for sure. I think just having the ability to go hard, earning that right to go hard is something that everyone should always be working towards. And it doesn't have to be sprinting, but it has to be something that's hard for you, but something that's safe and that you've earned the right to do. I think it makes a huge difference. Um, it's nice here you're talking about the breath. We talk about breathing all the time. I agree with you. I think that there are a lot of people that navigate through an entire 24-hour day without being present in one moment. And it's really hard. And I can say that I promise that there are people like that because I know a person who was like that. And it's really interesting whether you get it through pranayama, through yoga breathing, or whether you get it through meditation. I think it's interesting to be able to, in that moment, instead of having your face up against a movie screen and trying to watch it, be able to step this much back and actually see what's in front of you. Even if it's just for a moment, I think it's beneficial. So I think that you're right. What you're saying is if you're pushing that performance lever hard, you also need to push the recovery lever hard. So you have your active ways to kind of decompress, which we've talked about, but yes, walking through nature is really important. Connection to your community, connection to yourself and the loved ones that you love, going for a surf, going for a walk, hugging your dog. Those are all ways to push that passive recovery or that passive de-stress that I think is starting to get shifted back towards. But I think we just learned how to beat ourselves up so hard that our body was kind of like, all right, fine, we're cool. And we need to be a little bit more balanced and a little more well-rounded. So that leads us into our next question. Is athletic performance just for high-level athletes? Uh, so I'm going to react to your question, but just really quick, uh, interesting tidbit about me. So uh, some days, so I love mowing my lawn. It's really weird. I probably would have never seen me on Instagram and thought that she was, you know, someone that really enjoys mowing her lawn. But I do, for some reason, it's this weird thing. It's like almost like, you know, like a, a barber, like cutting hair and how it's like, oh my God, this is my product. But sometimes I use it as my recovery day. So I'm outside pushing the lawnmower and I'm like, this is my, my workout for the day and that's it. And I don't have a, a big yard, but you know, it's, it's exertion. Um, and it's also me in nature. I'm away from my phone for an hour or whatever it is. Sometimes I have my earbuds and sometimes I don't. Um, and it's just kind of being present because you have to be, and so you're, you know, run, don't run over your feet while you're mowing the lawn. So you kind of have to be engaged the whole time, which is nice. So anyway, so athletic performance training. So, Yes. So, um, you know, I was introduced to the world of athletic performance training through Darius. And this was back in, I probably started working with him maybe in 2012-ish, maybe I'm guessing. Um, and so it just, you know, I owe him a lot of where I am right now, just understanding how kettlebells um, work into the world of performance training. And so, um, you know, I think there's this, um, this, you know, idea that when you think of an athlete, you think of someone who is 18 and in shape and about to go to college to play sports, a sport somewhere. And that's not how I view athleticism. 
Um, I actually think that athletes can should be and can be of any age, um, including my mom, you know, your mom, like your dad, whoever, like, you know, I think at 60, 70, 50, 40, you should still be an athlete. I still want to be an athlete. I'm 40 years old. I still want to be able to jump over a 36 inch hurdle. Um, and it's not so much because um, I want it to play a sport. Um, but again, it goes back to that confidence building, I think. And, you know, you had said something um, earlier that kind of triggered something in me when we were talking about rehab or something. And, you know, I think um, so my training style and those of you who have been on like Zoom sessions with me or who have trained with me in person know that it's very rare that I go above five reps on anything. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One, um, I think when we're talking about the um, force velocity curve, you start losing that when you start going above five reps. And we did a lot of work with the push band at DSP and um, where your uh, velocity curve is after a certain number of reps. And typically it caps off at about five reps for most people. So this is what's the heaviest load that you can move the quickest. Um, and then after that, after a certain point, let's say five in this instance, that curve drops. So then is it actually efficient or effective for you to train with that same load for five to 10 or 15 or 20 reps? I've never really been a fan of training, you know, 15, 20, 30 reps of anything. I just, I don't really understand the point of it. Um, but, you know, people might not agree with me on that. So, you know, going back to what we were talking about before though, um, when you also take someone from um, a rehab setting or somewhere like that and are trying to get them into the, um, the strength training world, it's really intimidating to be like, pick that up 20 times. But if you tell someone you're gonna lift this, it looks heavy, I know it looks heavy, but you're only gonna lift it two times. That's so much more digestible for more people. And then when they actually lift it two times, they feel very accomplished in what they've done versus she told me to lift this 20 times. I could only get it 10. Am I a failure at this now? So, um, you know, taking that back to the performance training, I train all of my clients the same way. Now, granted, a lot of them have different issues going on that I might have to take into account. Um, but for the most part, all of my athletes from young to old jump, sprint, lift heavy, lift low volume. Um, it's all the same. Now, you know, going back to what you were saying about power generation, that may be different for each person. So I may have one athlete that is jumping over a 40 inch hurdle. The six year old might have a standard low hurdle. And that's fine. I don't care as long as they're learning how to put force into the ground, use that force to generate power to get over something because that's something that they need in life. And I have seen that with adults. Um, when I had my adult classes, I don't really do classes anymore. I do mostly individuals. But when I had my classes and I would do um, athletic performance type training, so the jumping, sprinting, vertical jumping, broad jumping, that kind of stuff, it was almost like field day, you know, for them. Like you could tell they were really enjoying it versus me just saying, 
go over to those weights and you're going to swing it 25 times, you know? Um, so I think there's a lot of benefit in um, performance training for all ages. I think what needs to happen is the mindset needs to change around what athletes are because really we're all athletes and we all really should be training the same way because ultimately we're trying to reach the same goal. Like in my mind, an athlete is effective at his or her sport because they've built a certain armor to be able to sustain whatever they're doing and to be able to um, absorb whatever force is being put at them. That shouldn't matter what age you are. That should be the goal ultimately for any age. Even if you're 60 years old, you still want to be able to build an armor to prevent injury. Um, you still want to be able to prevent or to be able to absorb force from, you know, falling or whatever, like tripping or something like that. So it's all kind of the same end goal. Um, so therefore, I think everyone should kind of train the same. And that's why I do train everyone the same. Like people that come to my classes know that, you know, it's always lower reps. We're always jumping. We're always sprinting. We're always doing something along those lines um, in those classes. So. Yeah, and that, that touches into really nice, like I, I'm almost going to save everyone the money to go to physical therapy school. I'm just going to tell you like the secret to all of it. It is find the hardest thing that they do well. And that kind of piggybacks to what we were talking about of like, you should go hard because it's a really good neurological activity at minimum. And then also find the easiest thing that they do shitty because that's really important too. Meaning like if they can't get their knee to go over their foot, that's the problem. No matter whether it's their shoulder or whether it's their neck or whether it's their hip or their back, find those easy tasks and find what they can't do all that well. Try and raise the tide up on that. And then all the tide's gonna come up and then find the hard thing that they do really well and then hit them from the top down. So I, it's nice to hear that you look at it the same way as you want people to perform and performance involves strength and power and athlete on an official team or not, you should be performing your strength and your power. That's who it is. That's where it's at. So the last question that official that I'm gonna ask you, and then we're gonna get into some Q and A, is how to balance life, everything else, and fitness. How do you, how do you work that out in your head? And what do you tell your clients? So this is like timely, obviously, because of everything that's going on here. But you know, I, I think I have maybe a slightly different take on um, like life balance with um, with fitness than maybe some people do. Um, and I've told my clients this, I have clients who, you know, their ultimate goal might be to lose weight and they come in and they're stressing out because they've gained weight or they, they slipped and didn't work out a couple days or whatever. And what I always tell them is you can always catch up at some point, like give yourself a break it's almost worse for you to beat up on yourself and to like not let yourself just live than to just be like, you know what? Like, you know, I tell my client, one of my clients this all the time, you have the rest of your life to kind of get this going, you know, to get in shape. 
it's okay if you slip a day. Like think of it in the grand scheme of things. It's one day and obviously you don't want that one day to domino into, you know, six years, but it's okay for it to be one day. Um, and you know, the bigger piece of it is, well, are you sleeping? Are you eating well? You know, what are you doing in that one day that you didn't work out? And I think that the last couple months, um, you know, I'm sure this is not just me, have been stressful for everyone. It's been, you know, maybe even stressful isn't the right word. It's been heavy. Um, and that takes a toll on everyone, regardless of whether or not you are protesting, whether or not you know somebody who has had COVID, any of that. It's, it's this constant like black cloud over us right now. And even if you're not directly linked to that somehow, um, it's in the air and you're like absorbing it somehow. And it's probably creating some stress response in your body. Every time you open up social media, it, you're just, I mean, it's like thrown in your face as soon as you open up social media and the news and everything that you turn on. So it's almost like, you know, you have to learn how to um, take yourself away from that stress a little bit. And, you know, I think one of the, um, probably the biggest things that most people can do is take a social media break for a little while, like take a mental break from it for a little while and let the training come after that. Because I, I don't, I don't think the training does away with the mental part of it. You know, there's obviously some benefit to training um, when it comes to relieving stress and stuff, but I think you have to remove the negativity around that and around you first to be able to focus on the training and for it to be effective. And until that happens, I really don't think that there's a benefit to training. So I'll leave that at that. <laughs> I feel the same way. And I think that it, it needs to be part. Everything's, everything is balance. And that I think is, as we were talking about, when you feel like your nose is kind of on the movie theater screen and you can just get a little bit of distance and kind of see what's going on. I think during this time, it's harder to have that little bit of separation and it's harder then for you to figure out your own balance. Um, balance for you and balance for me is different, but if we can get that little bit of separation, each of us have a better shot at figuring out what that might be. And I think in times like this, there's a couple of things. I think a lot of people think like, oh, well, it could be so much worse. And that's kind of how they try and rationalize their way out of feeling the heaviness that has been going on. And I think that that can fuel the flame because taking that, it's almost a form of resistance, which we know fuels the flame of emotions, and then trying to rationalize something that isn't necessarily in a rational base, like it's a feeling that everyone's feeling, that that can also end up having a bit of that fuel flaming quality. Like you said, taking away and a break from that social media, I'm not a neurologist, I don't totally understand, but I do know that there's something about being on social media that feels like it kicks up that amygdala, which is that fight or flight center in your mind. I'm not exactly sure how it works, but I know that there's a different response that your body gets from focusing and reading a book, maybe because reading a book is a little bit more like being one with your breath, like you're focusing on the book 
and the words that are coming rather than being on social media, which is a constant changing, which doesn't really bring you towards a focus. So I think that everyone kind of acknowledging the fact that, yeah, this is heavy, this is a shift, this is a change, this is challenging. And then letting your body feel and your mind feel whatever that may be with no judgment upon yourself is a good place for everyone to start. And fitness will probably fit into that somewhere because hopefully you have some sort of a positive relationship with movement. And if you do, that's continuing to familiarize your brain with a positive experience. If your brain hasn't felt positive experiences for long enough, it can almost forget what that feels like. And hopefully we've done a good enough job as strength coaches, people are trying to get people to have a positive experience with movement that we can get them to have that positive experience and then re-familiarize with those happy thoughts. If not, maybe our job is to say, go, go take a dance class, go surf, go do something that has nothing to do with me, but find out what that is for you and try and do it but don't be hard on yourself if it doesn't happen. Yeah. So that moves us into our Q&A session. We have a nice question right now. Rick, I'm going to ask it to you, and then I'll throw in my two cents, and we'll see where this goes. Anyone who's online with us, just throw down any question that you have on anything we talked about and, frankly, anything we didn't talk about. So, Rika, what would you recommend to increase your endurance? Um, well, I guess I would ask uh, the question back of what is the endurance being used for? Um, if it's for marathon running um, and that kind of activity, uh, triathlons and stuff like that, I think it kind of depends. I mean, I do a lot of kettlebell work with one of my clients who's a marathon runner. We do a lot of um, heavier, longer duration stuff, um, but it's kind of thrown into... Um, so let me give you the, the background of this client really quick. So he is a marathoner, half marathoner. He's an avid runner. Um, and he wants to get faster at his running and marathon times. However, he's got a lot of other things going on with him. Like his feet are not strong at all. Um, his balance is not very strong. Um, his stride is not very, um, it, it's his stride is good, but he needs work on his stride. So there, there's like some foundational work that has to be done before the endurance can be built on top of that. Um, I don't see a point of just shooting for the endurance when I think this stuff down here will actually make him faster um, and actually help him with his endurance in the long, in the long run, if that makes sense. Um, I don't know if that was really the, you know, what the, um, whoever asked the question is, um, was asking, but, you know, I think once that assessment of all of that other stuff is done, um, you know, potentially increasing some of that, the volume on your kettlebells. But I think that's also, it has to be very tailored and specific to that person. Can they handle that load? Um, again, ultimately, what is the goal? Is it to run a certain time? Because then it might be you ramp up and then taper down after that because they don't need to sustain that forever. I'm going to take a little different way to answer that. And I think that that your answer and my answer together are going to make this like super great answer. So I'm going to take it from a, let's start with your resting heart rate and see where that's at. So I think that to not go too deep into energy systems for anyone who's just kind of casually listening, or maybe that's not necessarily where their mind goes, 
in general, you have aerobic and you have anaerobic. So aerobic means that oxygen is involved in it. And anaerobic means that oxygen is not involved. And anaerobic would be easily summed up as I go out and sprint as hard and as fast as I can and can go for a certain amount of time before I can't any longer. And aerobic is what's happening right now, me chilling on the couch or that slow, long, steady state exercise where you're able to specifically to make it as like super easy as possible. If you can still breathe through your nose while you're doing it without struggling too much, it definitely has an an aerobic component to it. And everything we're doing has a mix of both of these. So we'll just leave it at that. So to talk about the aerobic system as being helpful to be kind of the system that's always working down in the background, take a look to answer the question, take a look at your resting heart rate. So if your resting heart rate is 60 or below, you've probably done a pretty good job of having that aerobic system working for you. If it's not the case though, and as much as this is like kind of fallen out of fashion to do this, some slow, steady state cardio where your resting heart rate doesn't really go about 150 for 45 to 90 minutes, one to three times a week is probably gonna be the fastest path to get you to your resting heart rate being 60 or below. And then you can start to look into some of the endurance in other ways. But I don't think it's unwise to start with that, looking at aerobic endurance as kind of the foundation and then start to build up your, if you will, like anaerobic endurance. And, and the way you might think about doing that is almost to find the, the area where you start to go back and forth from aerobic to anaerobic, kind of that like aerobic window and playing around towards the top of it. That's not a bad way to increase your, to again, to answer like your overall endurance. So that's kind of like, I, I, I like the way that we're talking about like kind of micro, like for this person, this person can have a bad foot and that's screwing everything up and then also a systems down approach. So I hope that answered your question, Evgen. Oh, it's Evgenia. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the next follow-up question <laughs> is also, since we are moving so little right now, how many times a week should we work out and what to focus on? Oh, and you are so welcome. Thank you. And I'm sorry I did not pronounce your name very well. That is a big sensitivity of mine. I apologize. Uh, since we're not moving, since we're moving so little right now, how often should we? Well, exactly. I would focus on. Well, why are we moving so little? Is it because we're not in a fitness facility doing stuff, or because we don't have access to equipment? Obviously, like everyone doesn't have my gym that I have downstairs, um, and I get that. Um, obviously, there, you know, the the fitness group fitness type facilities that we were going to before are not opened up. But again, get out and sprint, get out and use your jump rope, um, you know, do those types of activities to kind of make up for what you were doing before. Um, not that it fully makes up for it, but like, you know, there's some alternatives you can do. How many times a week? Um, you know, I think that's a tough question because like, Myself, personally, I can speak for myself. You know, there's some weeks where I'll work out two days a week. Um, and there's some days where I'll work out five days a week, six days a week. Um, and by workout, I don't mean like always kettlebell stuff. But, you know, I may 
box one day, uh, which now has become mostly shadow boxing, which is a really good workout. Um, or I might do a combination of kettlebells and something else um, and sprinting or something like that. Um, but then there's some weeks where I'm just like, I don't feel like doing anything. And the mood of the last couple months, I think, is, I think we can all kind of relate to how that feels. And you're just like, I don't want to do anything. Um, but I think, you know, uh, doing something active every day, I think is probably a start because I think that mentally kind of changes your, um, like how you feel about yourself that day. Um, even if you went out for like an hour walk, it's like, oh, you know, I, I was active today and did something. So, you know, I would say for kettlebells, if you're trying to learn them and train with them, you have to like have them in your hand four days a week or so to be able to become a solid practitioner of them. Is that realistic right now? I don't know. I mean, you know, maybe not for the next like month or so, but then after that, you know, it might be because there's more gyms that are accessible. Yeah, I would say that it is um, a really good idea for how much to take Reka's class every week. It's phenomenal. It was just what I needed at just the right time. Um, I highly recommend jumping on with her. Um, I'll ask her in a minute to get, give her all, to give us all the contact information so everyone can get on this. But it is a really good amount of activity, and I think that it helps move you towards that. And and normally these larger organizations, I'm just kind of like, where are you at? You're so out of touch. But the World Health Organization isn't too off on this one. People don't necessarily know what they're actually saying. They just hear it in the news. They're like, well, World Health Organization said that I should move 22, 20, that I should work out for 22 to 44 minutes per day. Um, the, the thing that I think that that's actually pretty good if you look at their standards for what working out is. And so they say moderate to vigorous exercise. Moderate means that you can talk, but you couldn't kind of sing. So as much as I love to hear that I went for a walk around the block, it doesn't, it does, those are no minutes. That gives you exactly zero minutes of your 22 to 44 minutes that you should be getting. But if you want to get your vigorous exercise, which is where you can like maybe say a couple of words and things like that, that's where I think Reka's class really, it's great to like check off those boxes. So find someone like Reka's class. Actually, don't find someone like, just go to Reka's class. It's just saying, you asked a question. I know you're already there, but for anyone listening, like just do that. And then find other ways to kind of supplement that with the things that you enjoy that make you a little bit out of breath. That's that's the whole point of it. That's that challenging um, that really does need to happen. Um, you're not gonna get any sort of adaptation in your body if you don't challenge your body a little bit. Um, this is your chance to challenge it. But I do have a lot of sympathy for people who are first responders, people who are taking care of people, people who are out protesting. Like right now is the ultimate time when I can't give an answer and have it be in a vacuum. And I totally get that. So. Just go back to the other answer I said before, like do the best you can have some balance. But if you do have the ability to have the time, 22 to 44, moderate to vigorous, that's real moderate to vigorous, and make sure that you're actually doing some diversification, whether it's kettlebells or whether it's if you can go out and surf or whether it's riding your bike, whatever it is, and that to tie it totally back if you're resting heart rate is 60 or above, make sure that you're doing that steady state cardio 45 minutes to 90 minutes, one to three times a week. If there so, are- yeah, really quickly, Just one quick comment on that. Um, you know, I think that people automatically assume that 
all I do all day is go downstairs and work out. It's actually been very difficult for me to be motivated to um, work out during this time. And so, you know, to your point about joining my class, I actually have been joining the reload guys classes like Ryan and Hunter and them. And it's not so much because I need a, you know, workout. I need that community. I need like to feel like someone is holding me accountable for an hour to work out. So like, you know, if you can't join my class, I would be happy to put you in touch with other kettlebell instructors who are also doing things that are similar to join their classes. Like maybe, you know, you can only come to my class one day a week, but two other of the other days, you're going to another instructor's class and taking theirs just to kind of have that community of kettlebell people, but also a community in general and someone that's holding you accountable two other days. Yeah, I like it. Okay, so then we have Reka, we have Darius, and we have the Reload Guys classes. Those are those are the three classes you got to be taking. Yeah. And make sure before you jump, if you have any other time, go on our Instagram or our YouTube and do some of the pillar preps. You can be making some really good strides with the stability right now with very little mess, very little fuss. So take it all and go for it. Uh, Reka, is there anything that you want to add before we leave? Feel free. And then also just tell everyone how they can get in touch with you. Um, no, the only thing that I'll add is that, you know, I want to think that I'm super helpful to anyone who has questions, you know, any random person that messages me on social media, I'm usually really good at responding back to them. Like I'm not one of those people that's like, go find a trainer or pay me for a question. So if you ever have questions, like feel free to reach out, like even if it's like, you know, how do I begin or who in my area can I go to? I'd be more than happy to help out with that. Or even if you want to send me a video of like, how does my technique do, look do, doing this? I'd be happy to take a look at it. So, um, and then as far as getting in touch with me, um, obviously there's always social media. Um, I, Steve, I don't know if you send out my email address and stuff after they're welcome to have that information as well. Okay, we'll do. So yeah, but yeah, any of those forms of communication work for me. Great. Well, thank you so much, Reka. This was an absolute pleasure. Um, we'll all, you know, keep on doing what we're doing. If anyone uh, has any other questions, feel free to hit us up. We're same thing on social media, no problem. But I want to thank you so much for your time, expertise, patience, and all the help that you've given me, and therefore all the help that I've been able to give other people. So thank you so much, and we will see you next time. Thank okay. you for the five questions. Thanks for having me. Bye, guys.